Every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Well, hello there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders today. Thanks for joining us here on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get right down to it. It is so hard to trust today. You don't, I'm, I'm guessing, now maybe I'm wrong, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing you probably don't trust much of what is coming to you through legacy media. And you know, you're not off base in the least for, for questioning that. You probably have some doubts about uh, what government is telling you to do, whether it's in response to COVID or whether it's in response to just how to live your life. In fact, uh, if anything, I think we're, we're seeing a bit of a crisis on the part of, of legitimacy in government. And, and some would tell you that the reason for that is because, because people like you and me were, were troublemakers and we're, we're, we're nonconformists and we're, we're just spending way too much time obsessing on rights and freedoms and you know, these esoteric uh, con- concepts from long ago when, when people traveled on horseback. Now, I'm here to tell you, we're, we're here standing for these things because they matter. And clumsy as we may be or incomplete as we may be in our understanding of why they matter, we know they matter. And so there comes that decision, and this comes to every single person, man, woman, or child, at some point, we all get to choose Will we go along with what's going on just so we can avoid criticism or so we don't uh, necessarily have to, uh, you know, face, uh, face being ostracized for holding a different point of view? Do we try to hide from it? Or do we actively oppose what we know isn't right? Now, the crazy thing is this used to be pretty universally understood. And I'm going to share something with you to, to kind of drive this point home. You may think, and you may be right, by the way, this may just be uh, meanless meandering through nostalgia for someone who longs for the good old days of television when it was just entertainment and not as politicized. But I'm going to play a one-minute clip with clip for you from the Andy Griffith Show. And what I want you to listen to is not so much is there a political message he's trying to get across here, is he advocating for something versus... Is this show reflecting values that were once widely held by most people? Give a listen. Give a listen. This is this is uh, Andy talking with Opie. Opie has just uh, uh, recorded something that he wasn't supposed to record on a tape recorder. Listen in. We hit wait, 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 wait a minute. What, what are you talking about? We bugged Mr. Blake's cell. You what? We bugged the cell with Arnold's tape recorder. Just listen to this, Paul. I, I can't listen to that. But, Paul... Opie, I can't listen to that. I'm not permitted. But, Paul, you don't understand. Opie, I can't listen to this. Now, I told you about eavesdropping. But, Paul, this is different. 
Yes, it's worse. You overheard a conversation that was supposed to be private. Now, I can't be a party to that. But, Paul, if you just listen to this... Opie, I can't listen. Paul, you're erasing the tape! That's what I mean to do. You bugged a conversation between a lawyer and his client. Now, that's violating one of the most sacred rights of privacy. But, Paul... No buts. But if it helps the law... Opie, the law can't use this kind of help. Because whether a man is guilty or innocent, we have to find that out by due process of law. Now, that's just a simple one-minute clip, right? But that was understood. Okay? Andy Griffith wasn't going for laughs in this particular, you know, instance, but it was considered mainstream to stand up for those kind of values. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the problem today is that there's too many shows having fun. You know, too many, too many, you know, other uh, things that are distracting us. But the truth of the matter is he was he was holding to a truth, which is, you know what? You don't bend corners. You don't allow government off its leash because that undermines people's trust in the law. And I mean, look how far we've come. Sixty years later, we are. We are definitely in a place where where people have every reason not to trust what their government is telling them and where their government is spying on them without virtue of of, uh, due process either. But it's become so normalized, you know, when people speak out, such as I'm doing right now, that's considered, ooh, that's extreme. Why are you so paranoid? Or the infamous, well, you know, if you have nothing to hide, then you really have nothing to fear. I don't know. Seems to me that uh, human nature has been very consistent. And if people would abuse power historically when they got power, then I think we have to keep uh, those who are granted that temporary use of power. Some We have to give them a very short leash lest they uh, go around and cause mischief. Anyway, the Andy Griffith show just illustrates, you know, there's... There's a lot that's changed. And I'm, say, I'm not saying we've got to go back to that Andy Griffith-style existence. But I'm just pointing out that, uh, you know, that was once considered mainstream. The laughs that you got on his show were, were derived from something other than, you know, political ridicule or just, you know, writing a, a script for TV with, with one hand in your crotch, which is how it appears most of, of the TV scripts can be written, at least on a lot of the sitcoms. You know, innuendo and vulgarities, just that's there. There's still a push to see who can outdo the other. And again, I, I'm veering into old man yells at clouds territory by even pointing out such a thing. So uh, let me take this in a slightly more radical direction. OK, this is this is my redeeming myself here. OK, for suggesting that, hey, maybe things weren't so bad during the Andy Griffith era, or at least the, the kind of entertainment that his show represented. It's quite an act of rebellion. If you were to, for instance, sit down with your kids and watch the Andy Griffith, Griffith Show, or or old shows like that, the Beverly Hillbillies, among others, you know, there 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 is something about those shows that is genuinely funny. They are highly entertaining, and it it gives me a lot of satisfaction. I can sit down and watch an old show like that, and my kids are dying laughing, saying, "This is pretty funny stuff." It's not as sophisticated, it's not as edgy as 30 Rock or The Office. And I enjoy those shows, don't get me wrong. But if you want to train up dragon slayers, people who understand their rights, 
You shouldn't have to feel apologetic. And yet, I, I promise you, people would say, well, you know, you get the you get the social justice warriors going to town and analyzing, well, what was wrong with the, the Andy Griffith show? Oh, the respect for the law. They worshipped cops, practically. Yeah, Andy didn't even carry a gun. Barney had one bullet. Come on. There was just a whole different emphasis on what society valued. And it's curious to see, you know, what, what our entertainment tells us today we value. Times have changed. The, you know, the thing's going to come full circle eventually. But boy, we're in a strange place right now. And if you want to stand for something that's traditional, um, you better be prepared to, to weather some waves. And the funny thing is people will look at you like, well, don't you want your kid to turn out normal? Yeah, so if I send them to public school where they can learn, you know, about uh, critical race theory, where they can learn about what the latest outrage is, so they can learn the oppression and sadness of the moment in which they are always assigned to one group. You're either the oppressed or you're the oppressor. I have a lot of respect for those parents that uh, have the courage to pull their kids out of school, knowing it's going to be expensive. It's going to be time-consuming. It will inconvenience their lives in ways that simply leaving the kid in school wouldn't. But God bless those people who understand the difference and who are willing to make the sacrifice to do it. Likewise, 84 million people right now in the U.S., at least according to OSHA, have a decision to make before, I think it's the 1st of December. I think that's when the <clears throat> mandate, such as it's called, you know, for vaccinations in, in various jobs that have more than 100 employees, um, is, is supposed to kick in. That's a lot of people being forced to make a decision. Do you do what it takes to keep your livelihood, even if it means selling out a bit of your personal autonomy? And I'm sorry to put it in those terms. If you're already feeling pressure, I'm probably adding to it. I don't know any other way to put it, though. Because my point is this, the people who are willing to walk away from their jobs rather than surrender that tiny bit of personal sovereignty and, and, and to participate in a medical procedure that they do not want to participate in. Those are real heroes. And they're, and they're facing legitimate risk. You know, try to portray them as they're selfish. And they're only thinking of themselves. Well, for anybody who's accusing them of that, my first question for you is, show me where you have skin in the game. How, how are you in any way impacted? And if you don't have skin in the game, I'm not so sure that uh, I should be taking your word over theirs as to why their reason does or doesn't ring true for not getting the jab. we got a lot on our plates, don't we? And you know, one of the biggest challenges that we're facing today is to stay rooted in reality when so many people and institutions have become detached from it and, in fact, judge us on whether or not we're as detached from it as they are. I want to share with you an article I found. This was on AmericanThinker.com. Has America become a realm beyond words? This is from a writer by the name of M.E. Boyd. And Boyd says, he start, actually starts with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is what endeared me to this article in the first place. Solzhenitsyn is a first-class thinker. And if you foresee that you have tough decisions to make, this is a guy whose writing will help you get some real clarity. Solzhenitsyn said, not everything has a name. Some things lead us into a realm beyond words. Now, M.E. Boyd says, even for even the most devoted wokesters in America today, 
whether true believers or camp followers, all know America is in a realm beyond words. It resembles that type of heightened exhilaration before one hits the ground in the instant agony of sure death, a Thelma and Louise moment. At such a time, and before our nation hits the ground, we may want to revisit a complicated writer, loyal Russian, and American visitor for almost 20 years, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, Boyd says, keep in mind, this is a man who loved his country, but not his country's tyranny. This is a man who embraced socialism and communism with his great mind and then turned on these ideologies once he saw them in practice. Stalin had him arrested and sent to the labor camps in 1945. The Soviet Union exiled him for his writing and publishing. And he eventually ended up in Montpelier, Vermont. Solzhenitsyn was a complex, perhaps tortured soul. And he tried to explain how both Russia and America got it wrong. So what he had to say about American society... He said in a 1978 commencement speech at Harvard University. And Boyd says this is an address worth noting. If you want to Google this for yourself, you can look up A World Split Apart. Solzhenitsyn gave the country, meaning America, a good dressing down. He told us America lacks civic courage. America's foreign policy reflects weakness, cowardice, and a lack of manliness. He told us Americans have become materialistic, irreligious, placed men at this they place man at the center of the audience of I'm sorry, let's try that again. Place man at the center of the universe rather and have the hubris to think that the Western social construct should be exported worldwide. Now think about what he just said there. Does, does any of that ring untrue? Even though he said it back in nineteen seventy eight. Hmm. To me, it rings very true. And he says, uh, Boyd says, Solzhenitsyn considered the American mass media to be nothing but a superficial purveyor of misinformation under the guise of freedom of the press. Now, again, this was almost 45 years ago. There is no such thing in America, he said, as far as freedom of the press. It's really freedom from deep investigation. He said the reporting in America is superficial and hastily contrived. It creates mass prejudices, blindness, and self-delusion. He said that America had lost its Christian heritage and has become soulless. Its form of rational humanism emancipates people from their moral core and creates a type of poverty of the spirit that allows evil ideologies to enter the society and take hold. He saw the signs all around. There is a decline in the arts in America. There are no statesmen of quality in America. When the delusional and the unrestrained don't get what they want, they burn and loot. We might add mob action for today's activists, even at weddings and in restrooms. Only a crowbar of historic events can break open the minds of the deluded. A Thelma and Louise moment, or moments that will destroy all. So Solzhenitsyn would not recommend our society to the world. Now this speech, remember, was given in 1978. He was living in Vermont with his three sons and a second wife before he went back to live in Russia. He had educated his children at MIT and Harvard. And in his memoir of that time, Between Two Millstones, Book Two, Solzhenitsyn admitted he admired the concepts he allowed himself to experience in America, although he kept mostly to himself. He admired the local nature of things here. He liked the idea of our rule of law and our fierce protection of liberty. He liked the New England sense of self-restraint. 
Solzhenitsyn warned that if we continued our moral decline and allowed socialism to replace free enterprise, that socialism of any type leads to a total destruction of the human spirit and to a leveling of mankind into death. He warned us that the path we are on will lead to a realm beyond words. His colleague Igor Shafarovich put it this way, Socialism's goal is to abolish private property, the family is the organic structure of society, and all religion. So M. E. Boyd says America is in the car at the edge of the cliff. The car is running. Will we gun the engine and fly off the edge to sure demise? Are there enough Americans with moral courage to take the keys away? Are there enough politicians to say no to both the bills before Congress that are intended to destroy our society, the harm of which cannot be reversed? Has any religious leader the faintest remembrance of our deeply rooted moral heritage that places God at the center of man's responsibility and is ever vigilant lest the old deluder lead us astray? See, Solzhenitsyn's warnings to America were not well received. His criticism of America was, in fact, that we didn't understand or respect Mother Russia. Now, in fact, Solzhenitsyn didn't understand America completely either. His view that the 18th century Enlightenment separated America from God is not accurate. The Constitution of 1787 rejected theocracy, but acknowledged the importance of religion and social structure by leaving religious matters, including the establishment of state churches, to each state. The founders never intended a wall of separation between individuals and God. What has separated Americans from God is materialism and relativism. And Boyd says Solzhenitsyn was right about that. Isn't that funny? The intelligentsia invites this famous Soviet dissident to come and speak to Harvard. Speak to our young people. Tell us what you have learned from your time in the gulags, the penal system, you know, under, under the Soviet Union. And he ended up calling them to task. Maybe they were expecting he was going to, you know, talk about how great America is and, you know, how awful the Soviet Union was. But now he called them to task, but he called them to task for making the same mistakes that the people in his country had made. And the warning that he sounded was a warning not of, you know, someone sitting in judgment over your country. Yes, I came here and because you think I'm high and mighty, I'm going to tell you how much you people suck and you just have to sit here and take it. I could be wrong, but I think he was actually speaking to us as a friend. I think he was saying the things that only a true friend would say. Things that might hurt your feelings, but were were being shared with you in a constructive manner, as in you can correct this. You should correct this. See, the great danger that he saw, and this is part of his world split apart uh, address to, to Harvard, was a kind of uh, moral mediocrity. In fact, at one point he, he talked about how the, the law itself is not enough to really make for a strong fabric of society. If everybody just basically stops at, well, what's legal and what's not legal? That's not going to make you a good person, and that's not going to make you a, a good society, especially when you hold it up to the you know examples of history and say, okay, slavery, was that legal or was that illegal? Well, it was totally legal. Was uh, harboring fugitive slaves legal or illegal? That was uh, totally illegal. All right, fair enough. Um, 
Let's talk about uh, the Jews in uh, Europe in, in the 1930s, in the 1940s. Was it legal or ir- illegal to hide the Jews from the Nazi authorities? Oh, that's totally illegal. Was it legal or illegal to report them and turn them over to the authorities? That was legal. You see the point, right? Just because something's legal does not mean it's good. Does not mean morally that it's acceptable. Solzhenitsyn warned about this. In fact, he said, the, the more we ignore the, the spiritual and moral side of our culture and ourselves, the more legalistic our society becomes. So, you know, we're, we're able to get away with things and to justify things in our conscience because, well, you know, the law says I can do it. So, obviously, it must be okay. And the danger there is that mutes or it denies the noblest impulses we should have that aren't written in law. They're the kind of impulses that are written on a person's heart, or at least a decent person's heart. Going back to M.E. Boyd's article, Has America Become a Realm Beyond Words? He shares a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville in 1831. Says it very well. Liberty regards religion as the divine source of its claims. It considers religion the safeguard of morality, and morality is the best security of law and the surest pledge of the duration of freedom. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in those few sentences, but every bit of that rings true. A religious society is far more likely to be capable of handling liberty, handling freedom, because it's self-governing. And Tocqueville thought through the, he also thought the invention of the township was another layer of local control. That was a great gift to the art of statecraft. But if you want to solve problems at the lowest possible level, clearly you got to start with solving the problems in your own heart. Now, this is not something that was just, you know, that, that Tocqueville invented or that Solzhenitsyn invented. They simply spoke to this truth. I think Confucius actually had some pretty good ideas talking about, you know, the, the wise people of his time, if they wanted order in their kingdom, they started with ordering their own inarticulate thoughts and their own hearts. And once their hearts were in order, then they set about putting their home in order and getting their family in order. When their families and their homes were in order, their communities would then get in order. And so the effect would move up the chain rather than coming from the top down. Boyd says, perhaps the civic courage we need now is best represented not by politicians and statesmen, but by ordinary parents trying to save their children in whose DNA lies the best American traits of strength and morals. They will turn off the engine of our self-inflicted inclination toward cultural suicide and wrap a firm but loving arm around Thelma and Louise until they regain their senses. As for Solzhenitsyn, he says, we do thank this great man, however, for pointing out how we got to the edge of the cliff in the first place. What one wonders would he say about America in 2021? I imagine it would be, it would be a pretty difficult uh, thing for him to contemplate, as well as others. So there you have it. It starts with you, and it starts with me, providing society with one improved unit, as Albert Nock would advise, but doing so in a way that we're using our example. 
We're coming up on break here, but I'll, I'll tell you the the one of the greatest lessons that I've learned so far in life, and I'm still open to learning more and getting some clarification on this, is that what we call success sometimes gravely underestimates what really matters. And I'm just going to give you the example. When someone reaches the end of their life, if you've ever watched someone you know, deal with a, a terminal illness, for instance, I can promise you that at the end of their life, their biggest concern is not, well, did I make enough money? Did, did I drive the right car? Was my house's square footage and neighborhood nice enough to communicate that I was a person of success? No. What they are concerned about is, who did I impact? How much love was I able to give? How much love was I able to receive? How did I change the world for the better? How would you like to answer that question? I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell the leading innovator of nutritional supplements for cell health. Most vitamins haven't been upgraded since the 1930s. Healthy Cell uses a innovative technology, which is a gel pack that pro- provides a better absorbed vitamins and nutrients where they're needed the most. I just took a Healthy Cell today before I went out and exercised, and I can tell you I am working hard for America Out Loud radio as we speak. And tonight, I am looking for good REM sleep. And I can tell you, I am tired and I want to fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell. I'm going to use the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. This is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, and get a 20% off for your first order of any product. I use Healthy Cell, and I'm really glad that I've been introduced to it. So I recommend it for you. Again, go to HealthyCell.com and use the OutLoud code, promotional code, for a 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. Very glad to have you uh, on board today. Here's one of the big challenges right now, and that is knowing what to believe. I mean, I'm looking at an article right now. This was uh, published on Substack by Laura Dodsworth. The news is being nudged. Now, she's writing particularly about the UK, but I think this could safely be extrapolated to other governments around the world. 
And in particular, you know, it used to be if you accuse the legacy media of uh, being propagandistic, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. You know, he's just some fringe person who doesn't agree with the truth. Not so. I mean, if you've seen some of the full-scale meltdowns and how the only possible explanation for why there were, were uh, so many political races, for instance, during the election uh, recently that, uh, that went to Republican candidates, well, racism, obviously. This is, what else could it be? I mean, you talk about untethered from reality, but that's, that's how they report whatever they're going to say. I want to share with you a couple of thoughts here from Laura Dodsworth. She says, she starts first with the definition of propaganda, and this is a good working definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. The systematic dissemination of information, especially in a biased or misleading way, in order to promote a political cause or point of view. So she asks, is is news still news when it's being nudged by the UK government's behavioral scientists? Now, what she's talking about is Sky Network announced this week that behavior change on climate can be driven by television. And it released a video which opened with the lines, we cannot understate the urgency. We are faced with issues of such enormity. What role can we play? But it's not actually a question because they've already decided their role. Sky announced that it was collaborating with the Independent Behavioral Insights Team. Now, that sounds more palatable rather than uh, collaborating with the government, doesn't it? But the Behavioral Insights Team, or BIT, is one-third owned by the Cabinet Office and appears to be on permanent tenure at Downing Street. So can a company which is one-third owned by the government be fairly described as independent, asks Laura Dodsworth. BIT's report, The Power of TV, nudging viewers to decarbonize their lifestyles, makes a number of startling admissions. Behavior change via broadcasting and traditional media has historically been aimed at improving public health, boosting gender equality, and reducing violence. Imagine the potential for emissions reductions if the same methods were used to encourage sustainable behaviors. Oh boy, I know you're like, this This is going to be the... Uh, Climate change time cell lecture. Here we go. The key word she points out here is historical. Laura Dodsworth says, if you've ever suspected that social and political issues were being confected somewhat artificially in TV programming, you were right. This is an admission of social engineering. Now, according to a, according to a joint survey by Sky and BIT, 70% of people across Europe are willing to change their behavior to address the climate change, and 80% support TV broadcasters nudging viewers to think about the environment. Now, whether that's through documentaries, advertising, or increasing the coverage of environmental issues in the news. See, climate policy is kind of a tricky nut to crack. Persuading us to have underperforming and expensive boilers, asking us to switch to eating insects for meat, Stop taking foreign holidays or stop driving our cars. And that's going to be a hard sell. So the nudgers are going to use the telebox to persuade the recalcitrant masses. Now, the survey itself uses social conformity. Ah, you're supposed to think if 80% of people think TV programming should be used to nudge us. Well, then that's what I think, too. Notoriously, however, there's a gap between what people say they want in surveys and what they actually want. So the ultimate proof will be in behavior and ratings. 
Now, the report states that broadcasters and content creators have a unique opportunity to make a difference for the planet. And Laurel Dodsworth says, I wonder what difference it would make if Sky's CEO stopped commuting transatlantically by private jet. Anyway, according to the report, the British public are unwilling to take supposedly high-impact actions, like eating less meat and dairy, switching to electric vehicles, using public transport, and switching to green pensions. The the report, she says, is audaciously bossy about how broadcasters and content creators should change British public's behavior. Advice such as frequency of exposure to green themes could be enhanced by building ecological beliefs and traits into core characters within a show so that green issues can fluently be raised time and time again. That sounds potentially tedious. You'll see fewer characters carelessly drinking from a plastic bottle, but you will see more kids programming center on green issues to influence you as well as the kids to promote intergenerational spillover. Suggestions continue with a family could discuss reducing their waste in a comedy show. Making that funny is quite the gauntlet throw. New segments uh, could explore barriers to acting green and share stories for overcoming them, which doesn't sound particularly newsworthy. An episode of drama could include include references to buying an electric vehicle. And, of course, characters should order vegetarian options in restaurants. I'm going to pump the brakes here for just a second and ask you, What she's describing here, do you not see that happening in similar subtle ways and in other issues in the the television programming that you see? I don't know. Maybe maybe this is a poor example, but um, where I live in the Intermountain West in the U.S., um, there's there's a premier news source out of Salt Lake City that is, you know, very well thought of. Always winner of Edgar R. Murrow awards and stuff. They're very well thought of. But I'm telling you, when it comes to COVID, the way this news outlet reports, everything is freaking doomsday. Everything. There's just, there is no way they would ever say, hey, you know, it looks like the worst has passed or it looks like, you know, things have improved and cases are way down and People can finally start feeling normal again. It's always just back to, oh, well, we've got this breathless story about some other outlier and somehow it's connected to COVID and you should be really scared. I mean, they act like it's it's a disservice, like you are less than responsible if you're not as scared as we're telling you to be. So, yeah, they do manage to work it into their news stories. TV shows the same thing. I mean, how many people remember? This is, this is no slight here, but how many people remember when... Um, there wasn't a gay or trans character in every TV show. There wasn't a storyline centered around that. It's not that they were hostile towards such characters. It's just there wasn't that need to, to show. Look how woke we are. Huh? Pretty woke, huh? You going to compliment me on my wokeness? It's brand new. Right out of the box. Anyway. Plump the cushions. Grab a cuppa. Get her ready for the green themes in your favorite psy opera. I mean, soap opera says Laura Dodsworth. She says during COP26, the big climate meeting in Scotland, you know the one where all the big mucky mucks flew in their jets, had massive entourages and, you know, burned up, you know, a whole bunch of carbon. Yeah, that one. Storylines are converging on the environment. And boy, they were really playing it up as, boy, this is just critical. We've got to do something. We have no choice. Kind of similar words to what we heard in the last couple of years about how they handled COVID the lockdowns and such. 
Any relation? I guess we're going to find out. Look, the, the bottom line is this. Laura Dodsworth's soap opera ratings have diminished over the years, and is it any wonder? People don't want to be preached to. Creativity cannot be programmed. Storytelling is an art, and it's naive arrogance to believe that this kind of technocratic tinkering is going to engage viewers. You want to engage viewers? She says we, we gravitate to good stories. Now, mercifully, BIT suggests that broadcasters avoid a negative tone and warns that fear-mongering, guilt-tripping, blaming, or preaching can be counterproductive. In fact, she wonders if a, a certain book had an impact. In addition to Sky, another 11 major UK media brands, including the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, RTE, BritBox, and Discovery, have pledged to increase the amount and quality of their climate coverage. So expect the airwaves to be flooded with the techniques suggested in this BIT report. And at the same time, expect very little media scrutiny on this astonishing collaboration between nudgers and newscasters. And in print and online, the BBC, The Guardian, The Times, and The Financial Times have added specific climate sections to their news. I guess the memo has gone out. There will be no avoiding this. A few months after the publication of A State of Fear, a government advisor told Laura Dodsworth that the behavioral scientists are very pleased with themselves and Britain is seen as leading the way in how to manipulate people. That's a pretty bold admission, right? They're skipping in Whitehall corridors, she says. The public have proven to be incredibly sheepish, so there's more nudge coming. And so there it is. Now, she says, my book conceded, or concluded rather, that the UK government's use of behavioral science during the COVID epidemic lacked transparency and was anti-democratic. BIT's report might appear to rebut both accusations, but she says, don't be fooled. It rests upon a survey which says people want to be nudged through the media. But research conducted by biased invested parties is not a substitute for democratic ma- for a democratic mandate. The British public never voted for or consented to the, to the creation of a nudge unit to subliminally influence them and then set the news agenda. Furthermore, when behavioral scientists and by extension the government influence the news, it risks the inquiry, debate, and balance that the media owes the public. So whatever you believe about climate or COVID-19 or any other agenda, can any mental contortions justify the news being nudged? That's a tough question, right? Laura Dodsworth says, We would criticize such blatant propaganda if it happened in any other country, and we should not tolerate it here. We should switch it off. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any research into Operation Mockingbird. But there's great evidence, and I mean solid evidence, that yes, the CIA, from the time World War II ended to modern day, has been very good at placing its assets or people with whom it has had, uh, shall we say, conversations within the media. And you look at some of the different cable talking head shows, There's no shock when you see a former CIA official, John Brennan, joins us to talk about this or to talk about that. So I'm not just talking about, you know, maybe they've got a spy or two somewhere in the media. Although, if you think about it, if you had to get someone in and out of uh, lots of different international areas with access to powerful people, that'd be pretty good cover, right? 
But it's also along the lines that the CIA under Operation Mockingbird set out to influence the American news in a positive way. And look, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that, you know, people should love their country. The problem I have is when government gets involved and is doing it, as as, uh, Laura Dodsworth points out, on more of a subliminal level, manipulating the news, manipulating the coverage. Sometimes, you know, they'll just be unnamed sources. Well, this information was leaked to us by credible sources within the administration, blah, blah, blah. And that's how you shape the news cycle, how you get the headlines out there that you want. In fact, you know, with enough access, you could reasonably, you know, write tomorrow's headlines today. Just by the the news that you're releasing or the, the misinformation you release or the people that you're influencing who are out there talking about it in media circles. So... I think we described the problem pretty well. At least I hope this, this is giving you a good taste of what the problem consists of. Now, how do we find the solution? I can't tell you how many times in the course of a, a month people will ask me, hey, what do you recommend as a good news source? And when people ask that, I assume they're asking, well, you know, what are you, what are you talking about here? Uh, you know, somebody whose uh, every word is true. Something you can hang your hat on? Somebody that's not uh, agenda-driven? And the truth of the matter is, I don't know that there is any such source that is completely unbiased, absolutely infallible. Now, having said that, I believe there are sources that do try harder to remain as, as neutral as they can. They're not free of bias or they're not free of an agenda, but the ones who are at least open about, this is where we're coming from. This is what we stand for but then still prevent, present the news, rather, with, with as little judgment as possible, as few labels as possible. Yeah, those are people I'm going to be more likely to listen to. But even then, i got to caution you that it's not a good idea to outsource your understanding of the world around you to somebody else who knows more. I know there are people who are smarter than me. I know there are people who know much more about any given subject than I do at the moment. Even so, I will not outsource my thinking to them. I'll tell you what I will do is I'll, I'll reach out to them and I'll ask them. There, I have friends that I specifically will call up and say, I trust your point of view. And I'm not asking you to tell me what to think, but on this issue, I would like to know what, uh, what your perceptions are, what your take is. And then they don't feel like, well, I have to change his mind or I have to, you know, tell him what he wants to hear. They just, I, I want to hear what they think about it, what their observations are. And then I'll make up my own mind. But you've got to be willing to trust yourself. And I think this is where a lot of us tend to fall down because, you know, we hide behind that false modesty. But I'm not an expert. Huh? What do I know? I'm just a person. So I want to share with you, um, this is some advice from Paul Rosenberg. And I think if there was ever a time to think like an expert, this is that time. Now, this is an essay he wrote back in January of 2014. And it's titled, If You Spend 30 Minutes a Day Just Doing This. He says, Earl Nightingale researched and taught about success for decades. And he took his job seriously. His work is often forgotten now, but if you can find it, it's definitely worth your time. Paul Rosenberg says it was very helpful to him. Now, one of Earl's more interesting lessons was this. If you spend 30 minutes every day learning about one specific subject, you'll become a legitimate expert in six months. 
Now, Paul Rosenberg says this is true. He says, I know it's true because I took Earl's advice and became an expert. Now, he says, perhaps it'll take longer than six months for a difficult subject, but 30 minutes per day, if you actually use the time for serious study every day, is a lot of focused time. So how do you do it? Well, he says, this is far easier than you might think. As long as you can make hard decisions and run your own life and refuse to live by the expectations of others. Now, that means you have to be able to say no. That means that you can accept the fact that others will be disappointed in you. You must be able to do what you think is right, regardless of their repeated objections. So in his case, it was a matter of, he said, when I first did this, it involved not having lunch with the people I worked with. I went off my, on my own and I read while eating. Now, some of my colleagues thought I was being rude or weird, but he says I did it anyway. So when the other guys go out to lunch, he says, sit by yourself and read. And when they go out after work, he says, go home and study. If friends or family don't like it, do it anyway. Be different. Assure them that there's no insult intended, but take whatever heat is required and then do what's best for you. Now, he says, you probably won't lose many friends over this, but if you do, so be it. Any friend who requires that you not change and grow is not a friend that you need to keep. So here are a few tips of how to go about becoming an expert in whatever it is that you want to study 30 minutes a day. First, he says, go for quality, not quantity. In other words, forget about reading a certain number of pages per day. That's a mistake. But make sure you understand what you read. That's the only thing that matters. What that means is you can't just go through the motions. You stop and you back up whenever you must. If you don't understand something, Paul Rosenberg says, circle it and look it up at your first opportunity. Don't leave anything out, because if you do, you're subverting your future learning. Fill in the gaps as you go, not later. Now, the reasoning behind this is you have to understand why things work as they do. It's not enough to understand how they work. You have to know why. You must know what interacts with the things you study and makes them act as they do. Now, once you understand that, you'll start becoming a real expert. He also advises, keep paper and pen next to your book. Write down things you need to check. Write down other ideas that come up while reading. Write down ideas for using the things you're reading about. And once you finish a book or magazine or whatever, review your notes and then put everything of value into a file. He suggests using a computer for this. And if you do this, you'll become a legitimate expert at whatever you study. Special talents are not required for any of this. Genius is not required. You must first make your decision, then act and stay with it under pressure. And isn't it interesting? Some of that pressure comes from without. A great deal of it comes from within. That desire to just, yeah, 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 plow ahead and and assume that I understand what it means. you got to really pay the price to understand. Paul Rosenberg finishes up with a, a short comment from Calvin Coolidge. This is brilliant. Calvin Coolidge said, Press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing in the world is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. 
So make good choices, hold on to them regardless of pressure, and press on. I think the hardest part about this is just learning to trust yourself. You've got to be willing to to believe that you can do and you can trust your, your thinking, you know, to do your own research. Now, I want to caution here because I, I, I watched a I watched a video a couple of years ago and it was someone who was decrying, you know, I think it was CNN had made something up. Uh, oh, yeah, this was back at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Don't do your own research, said the article. Don't uh, don't dare do your own research. And they had experts who came on and said, you know, the problem here is people start doing their own research and they actually start to believe themselves over these experts. Can you believe it? And obviously the expert class was really offended that uh, it would come down to this. I'm here to tell you, you can trust yourself. But it takes practice. And it takes an open mind. And above all, it takes the willingness to use three little words that will open doors for you. If you can find the courage to say them. The words are, I don't know. When's the last time you heard a politician say, I don't know? When someone asked them a question, whether it was a legit question or whether it was a, you know, classic gotcha, you know, kind of question. It's really rare. If you can find someone who is, you know, running for public office who will say the words, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm happy to learn more about it. That's somebody probably worth keeping an eye on. Because there's at least a degree of humility there to admit that, uh, hey, I don't have to pretend that I've got this all down and I know exactly what's going on and I know what's best. So don't become the know-it-all. Be humble. Be open to new truth. But also be willing to to trust yourself. We all tend to second-guess, you know, am am I being deceived here? This is one of the times where I say conscience is, is absolutely your friend. I particularly have had to rely on conscience for uh, matters involving, you know, the, the vaccinations. I'm not telling people, don't you dare get the vaccination, but if somebody's conscience says, I really shouldn't do this, I stand 100% in their corner. They don't need to justify it to me. They don't need to justify it to anybody else. And, you know, these uh, these exemptions well can you fill out a religious exemption or some some other kind of medical exemption none of those should be relevant none of those should be required as a matter of conscience a person should be able to say i cannot and i will not participate in this and not have to give any account to anyone other than themselves i know it's easy for me to say right i'm 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 not one of the 84 million right now standing at the point of a hypodermic being told, you either take this or you lose your job. I think we have a duty to be aware of those around us who are making those tough decisions. I think we have a duty to to be the kind of people that they can lean on and to support them however we can. See, the truth of the matter is, I don't know how much harder this thing can get. I suspect it can get a lot tougher. But I'm confident that the way out is found through voluntary relationships as opposed to involuntary relationships. Maybe I'll end on this note. 
the crazy thing about, uh, you know, all the battling back and forth over parents and school boards, which, uh, by the way, I think that is kind of the catalyst that sent a lot of people out and made a decisive difference in the elections that just took place. Parents were told, look, you need to shut up and trust us to do the right thing with your kids, and you have no right to be giving input on what's appropriate or what isn't appropriate for your child. The experts were telling these parents, you don't know enough about your child to make those kind of decisions. And the parents' response was, oh, yes, I do. And I think you saw them stand up in in some pretty significant numbers. Now, will it last? I don't know. But I know that we are coming up on another crucial crossroads, and that is going to be the mandated vaccination of children. I mean, look, the okay was just given within the last day or so that, uh, oh, yes, I, I can't remember if it was Pfizer or Moderna. They've they've been approved for children ages 5 through 11 or something like this. It's, you know, the, the vaccines have been approved. Someone's going to want to mandate this. I mean, this is part of the larger everyone has to be vaccinated push. So, parents, if you were strong enough to stand up for your kids against some of the the Marxist mentality that's being trained into them and and indoctrinated into them in school, good for you. You're probably going to do fine. Parents who have backed down and said, well, you know, I don't want to be making waves. I mean, they might consider me a domestic terrorist or something like this. You've got a pretty tough decision ahead of you, and it's going to be, what do I do when they tell me my kid can't come to school because he or she needs to take the needle. What do you do? I mean, I don't know if this is the kind of decision that you can can just uh, wait until the moment of truth arrives and then, yeah, let me think about that a little bit. Probably better off to have this decision made well before the moment of pass or play is forced upon you. Would it be harder to pull your child out of school? Absolutely. Might it require you to to sacrifice at some level to find another way to educate them, whether you homeschool them or whether you send them to a charter school or some private school? Yeah, yeah, it could be tough. But would you rather be part of an involuntary relationship or a voluntary one? What then? I see people doing the work every day of building a parallel structure, not a carbon copy of the the one that uh, currently holds so much of our institutions in its thrall, but parallel structures of education, parallel structures of trade, parallel structures of fellowship and support. I'm thinking that's a pretty productive uh, direction that we should be turning our minds right now. And the key phrase here, or at least the key, um, the key portion that you need to keep in mind is if it's not a voluntary association, if it's not something that you can enter into or withdraw from voluntarily, you might want to rethink if you want to be a part of that. I mean, most of the states have compulsory education laws, have had for 100 years or better. Because education is such a good idea. It's so essential. We need to hold people accountable if for some reason they're not sending their kids to school. Well, unfortunately, the schools are captured. Unfortunately, the schools are 100% under the control of people who want absolute control. 
That doesn't mean you don't have good employees there. You do. My wife is a public school teacher. She's a great person. But the system that she works in, it's a system that's being used to, to separate our young people from the principles and the practices that would enable them to be free people into the future. Government's not going to teach them how to stand up for themselves and assert their rights. Government is never going to give them permission to refuse to go along with what they're being told to do. So the responsibility for teaching that falls on you and me and a willingness to be seen as out of step with others and a willingness to suffer the pain of being misunderstood or maligned unfairly because of those beliefs. I suspect you're probably up to it. You wouldn't be listening to a show like this if you didn't have some fire in your belly and a stainless steel spine. But understand, it's it's a tough order. It's not easy to make that stand, and the people around you who are making that first tentative stand, they need your example. They need your support and encouragement. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders on the America Out Loud Network.